Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. This edition is sponsored by the Tricord Group, leading successful relationship constructs for over 25 years, and Vim, helping the architecture and design disciplines design, deliver, and operate better buildings for a better world. Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Well, over the last few weeks, we've had an opportunity to talk to several professionals and leaders from around the world to get their perspective on what's been altered coming out of this COVID-19 pandemic and how it's affected their practices, their everyday life. We asked them to contemplate the following questions. What lessons did you observe and adopt coming through the pandemic regarding the built environment industry, your practice, and your society? What do you predict to be the permanent changes in your region, in your industry, in your practice, and maybe in your life that will be adopted in the post-pandemic world? And thirdly, at Design Intelligence, we hold that equity, healthiness, and the environment are inextricably linked. How do you, as a planner or architect, an engineer or constructor, functionally apply such thinking to the work of the built environment industry moving forward? We recorded these conversations over a period of weeks, and so instead of me being able to have a direct conversation one-on-one -on -one like we usually do, you're going to hear a series of pre-recorded responses to these from these folks. They're rich, they're meaningful. I hope you'll take the time to listen. We recently spoke with Bill Nankaville. Bill is the CEO of B Plus H Architects, a leading global design solutions and consulting firm with a legacy of over 65 years of award-winning work. Since joining B Plus H in 1996 as a partner and appointed as CEO in 2006, Bill's strategic vision has catalyzed the firm's growth throughout Canada, the United States, the Middle East, and Asia, delivering core architecture, strategic consulting, planning, landscape, and interior design services with a team of more than 450 collaborating across 10 studios globally. Let's listen to what Bill's responses were to my questions. Well, as designers and architects, you know, we, we are in the business of creating spaces where people come together. You know, what we do is, you know, at our firm, people are saying, you know, we design large buildings where people congregate socially, to socialize, to learn, to work, to heal, to live, to entertain. And we create spaces that facilitate social interaction. So, you know, when the pandemic, you know, really vacated so much of that space, it, it really made us to kind of stop and reflect on how do you define what a space is? How, how is it used? What is its purpose? Uh, you know, the, the, one of the questions was, you know, what is a space when there is no one there to occupy it? So it made us sort of rethink about the space of the work we do for our clients, but it also forced us to think about our own spaces at B plus H. And, and you know, we're a global design and consulting practice, different cultures, different locations around the world. And when we couldn't see each other in person, when we couldn't 
kind of get together and engage on, on generative collaboration, it's essential. We decided actually to do some of our own research. And, and so our observations, we treated this as a research project and we did a series of remote work experience surveys. So one a couple of months into it and then, and then another one uh, at, at the start of this year and some check-ins at different intervals. And, and it was quite interesting that what we found, and we certainly have learned that within our, even within our own industry for our own people, you know, the appetite for remote working really increased and 40% of our staff said that they would prefer to continue to work two to three days a week uh, remotely. They just cited factors such as privacy and noise and nourishment and sleep and natural light and exercise. Uh, there, there were all benefits they actually had from this experience. And so we assume that other clients and people around the world feeling the same. On the other hand, we're also able to really drill down on those things that don't work in that remote work environment. So, you know, the effect of the pandemic on the built space we have and when it's vacated is that things such as sociability and collaboration and teamwork uh, and even just the, the kind of variety of aesthetics that you see in your life when you're largely working in your room at home in a smaller space were the very negative pieces. And coupled with the fact that fully 35% of our staff said that they had mental health challenges of one level or another related to working remotely. And so really what we got out of this is that our staff, our observations, and, and I believe this really applies to most people, particularly in a kind of a more conventional professional service uh, type of, of workspace model, they want an inherently flexible uh, schedule. They, they want autonomy to organize their, their work schedules the way they want, but they also want to facilitate the in-person studio time, the, those, those things that are really the high-value interactions, the collaborative activities, the mentoring, the teaching, the socializing is still critically important to them. But that, that heads-down work, which can be done from virtually anywhere, is just simply things that people are going to be changing the way that they look at the built environment that they need to support them. I think the permanent changes are really going to be about a hybrid work model. And I say permanent because when we're talking with our clients now, what we're hearing, the really the ones that are you know most advanced and they're thinking on this are not talking about it in the context of, oh, well, the pandemic did this. And so this is what we need to do to solve that. The, the pandemic accelerated changes that were already underway within the workplace. Uh, in particular, you know, that as designers that we were all struggling with. And when we were kind of forced to shift into this type of working, um, we and lots of other companies and clients of ours were all experimenting with these remote work models. And it's really just accelerated this on, on a scale we haven't seen. And people who weren't even starting to think about it beforehand were probably the ones caught flat-footed and, and fared the worst uh, throughout the experience. But I think so the permanent changes are truly a kind of a hybrid workplace, which means that what happens in the actual physical workspace is going to be a different activities than than the total of all those activities. You know, I think that a lot of organizations are sort of saying, well, what actually has to happen in our built space? for us to justify even providing it at all. And, you know, the world's shifted from, from a place where an employer had an obligation to provide a workspace, to provide a desk or whatever the physical space was, that that was simply the status quo. And that is really now changing. And, you know, the, the employers now have the obligation to provide the tools, to provide the infrastructure, to provide the culture 
uh, most of all, and that those are the important things that are going to drive how you then configure, uh, you know, the built space. We're looking at this sort of the new reality is, is a hybrid work model. It's going to prioritize that in-office time on high-value social collaborative uh, aspect of the work, you know, that's going to build on the purpose and the vision of an organization. You know, what is our culture? What are we delivering to the world? And that if you can kind of create space that enhances this, that is really the most important thing that, w- that we're focusing on. Certainly, you know, in the commercial development, the standalone commercial office tower is probably, we're not going to see a lot of demand for more of that right now. We we know, we are hearing from our clients, particularly tenants on our workplace design side, they're all now coming back and saying, what we have realized in the last 14 months is that going forward, we're going to want 20 or 30% less space, less commercial space in, in the built workplace. So what do we do with all the space that, you know, that isn't around? You know, how do we help developers look at new revenue streams? So this is a permanent change that's going to happen in the industry in Canada. And as designers, we've all got challenges to work with our clients, work with the developers, work with the with the, with the landlords, work with the institutions um, in the universities and the hospitals. How do we deal with unused traditional commercial workspace? Or how can we reposition existing commercial assets? Because again, that that permanent change is still, you know, we've got an aging building stock in Canada. How do we reposition and how do we even rethink what that kind of traditional um, commercial space is? So we're looking at that. In the healthcare world, you know, the permanent changes, I think, are going to be primarily around flexibility of space. You know, the, the largely in healthcare design in the last 20 years, we've already had pandemics that those in the healthcare delivery world would know, SARS and MERS and H1N1. And, and so hospital design did evolve pretty well to respond to a lot of lessons there. And the fundamental sort of kind of planning principles, for example, and, you know, we're now almost exclusively doing single patient rooms with private bathrooms and but, but what we've learned from this pandemic that I think, again, will become a permanent change in Canada is much more flexibility in those spaces. So one of the things we learned in Canada uh, was maybe more so than the United States. Uh, the pandemic just exposed we have a significant shortage of ICU beds if we're going to manage a public health crisis at this scale. We need to either drastically increase you know, the number of dedicated ICU beds. But on the other hand, you can't design for assumption that you're in a pandemic situation all the time. So there's got to be some flexibility. So what are some new models we can look at? What are what are some room typologies that could function for that ICU type use during a severe health crisis, uh, such as, you know, the one we've been through? And what could they be done, you know, at other times? And conversely, when we design our very large public buildings, on the assumption that a pandemic is going to come again, you know, that, that, that this is some fundamental changes in, quite frankly, how we're treating the world, that we may be in this situation more frequently. And so also at the same time, how can we look at particularly our very large public buildings and think how they might be adapted to help us to battle whatever that next virus or whatever that next health crisis is? I just, as an example, uh, in Singapore, we, we partnered with our, um, our, our partner company, Surbana Jurong. We designed a community care facility at their very large expo site. Uh, and it it was it was 
built to house COVID-19 patients with mild symptoms, but it freed up hospitals for those most severe ones. So when we're looking at these sort of permanent changes about flexibility, we're saying you don't have to imagine that only a hospital building can do this. And in this case, there was a very large multidisciplinary team that actually had built and designed, planned, and had in operation 950 beds within two days uh, in the first two halls. And ultimately, they did 10 halls, and there were thousands of beds, again, where people with mild COVID could go. So flexibility uh, and adaptability, I think, is the key. And then finally, maybe just kind of briefly about education. I do believe that while a permanent change will be an adoption of more remote learning um, models and technologies and ways to deliver, I still think that we largely believe that generally speaking, learning happens best, particularly for younger people in a physical and social environment. You know, and that social learning is absolutely key to the development of children and adolescents. So I don't think you will see a drastic change in in the number of people who go to schools together. I think what we might see, though, is a kind of permanent change is, again, on the assumption that this, this is going to happen again. And it may be a cycle that recurs, uh, unfortunately, more frequently than, you know, than it has in the past that the classrooms and the learning spaces we design are going to have to be able to adapt. They're going to be flexible. They might essentially become a broadcast studio rather than a, an inhabited teaching social kind of space studio. Um, the ability to shift around from uh, tech to uh, digital learning to in-person learning and maybe in fact have multiple uses over the course of the day where it's doing a bit of, you know, it's doing one thing in the morning and another in the afternoon and perhaps in the evening uh, are models. So those permanent changes very much about uh, flexibility and adaptability in what we design. In Canada in particular, Canada is actually a, for a vast country we're actually a very urban nation, uh, you know, with a vast majority of our population living in cities and, and urban areas. You know, and, and when you look at looking around the world, you know, the United Nations world urbanization kind of prospects is, you know, say more than 60 percent of the world's population will, will be in an urban area in less than 10 years. But, but I think COVID-19 exposed some pretty big flaws in our urban in- infrastructure and, and particularly it's demonstrated how health, the natural systems, and the built environment are just, they're critically linked for the health of our planet. And, and we've now seen the consequences of when it doesn't work. I, and it's also really exposed issues in the development of our urban centers around equity uh, and lack of inclusivity. It's quite clear, you know, very sadly that, um, you know, racial and ethnic minority groups have been disproportionately affected by, by the virus, you know, lack of access to social service or health care or, the, you know, which populations live in much higher densities of families and multiple families and multiple generations together. So, yes, we do need to respond uh, in Canada to looking at our built environment uh, in a more equitable manner. And I think it, it can't start until you ensure that the people who are at the table for those design conversations are themselves, you know, representative of an equitable society and, and representative of, you know, multi-generations and multicultural, uh, you know, expertise. So as an industry, we need to be looking at ourselves very hard first. We actually do a funded research program within the firm each year. We call it our Catalyst Talent Program. 
and it takes uh, interdisciplinary talent from, again, our, our, our multiple cultures that we have uh, within our global firm. And we get a group of young designers together and we give them time. And this year they went out and explored. Uh, the topic was the future of work because we started this uh, just after the pandemic really broke last uh, last spring. Uh, and they developed, uh, they decided, went off to develop a really an interesting, a, a new typology prototype for, for a tall building that, that they, they nicknamed the use neutral tower. And it's a resilient typology. It's modular, prefabricated, you know, of mass timber, concrete, steel hybrid. It's a very healthy, living, breathing building. And it was meant to show a, a high density, tall urban solution that could provide much more flexibility and adaptability from workplace to residential to hospitality to even educational. And we think an interesting exercise about bringing a diversity of voices to the table. And, and you know, that's really what we need to be doing. You can't make the change in design uh, if we're not you know, equally committed to uh, making the changes in, in who we have within our firm. Uh, we're actually 57% of all of our staff uh, at B plus H uh, identify as female and, and 50% of our senior leadership team uh, are women. Um, so, and we believe that actually has an impact on the design that we do. And like everyone else, we need to work harder to get be equitable with all groups throughout society uh, within the design profession. And, you know, it's up to us to go out, reach out, deal with pay equity, recruitment practices, diversity and inclusivity training, and, and making sure that our, our leadership and our mentorship opportunities reflect that as well. But yes, it's a very important issue we all need to tackle. Insight Empowered Foresight is a tagline that we've trademarked here at Design Intelligence. I hope you heard both insight and foresight in some of these remarks. Until next time, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of This is Design Intelligence, sponsored by the Tricord Group and Vim. The producer for This Is Design Intelligence is Laura Spells. Sound engineering by Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.